The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Thank you, Dean Swift. Good morning. I would like to introduce you to a woman named Holly. That's not her real name, and she has no connection with Karen whatsoever. She is someone that I had the privilege of um, knowing during my time in pastoral ministry. She, at the time of her self-description that I'm gonna share with you, was a Christian woman in her mid-40s whose life had been riddled with um, physical and emotional pain. She had long been a professing Christian, but her understanding of biblical teaching was paltry for the majority of that time. And Holly describes the source of much of her inner turmoil in the following words. At the very early age, at a very early age, I was lured into a neighbor's home by Hershey bars, a kitten, and cooing words of affection. My mother was very ill and my dad was at school getting his PhD. No doubt the neighbors sensed my longing for love and attention. Trust was gained after several weeks. They casually befriended my parents and then the abuse started. I didn't tell anyone because my mom was sick and I didn't want her to worry. These people eventually wound up in prison. This is why I divorced myself from my body. It was the way I coped with the abuse. It didn't happen to me. It happened to the body. Can the body of Christ help someone like Holly? meaningfully. Is there anything that we have to offer someone like her? Well, we'll come back to her later in the message, but I just wanted you to hear from her up front. In our Cairn University Community Life Covenant, the following words appear. Cairn is an academic community of Christian students, faculty and staff. Christian community involves covenantal responsibility and mutual obligation to one another as members of one body, living together before a righteous and holy God. That um, reference to a mutual obligation, a covenantal mutual obligation to one another as members of one body, I would like us to focus on, and today, based upon the passage from Colossians that Dean Swift read for us, I would like to focus on just one of those marks of a Christian community. And the one that I would like to focus on is, um, can be stated in these words. Ministry of the word to other members of the body of Christ 
is the responsibility of every believer. That is the focus of my talk this morning. As we think about what kind of community we want to be and the kind of community that we should be becoming in light of what God has revealed in his word, all of what was read should be characteristic of us. So by focusing solely on this, I'm not saying this is the only mark, or even necessarily the most important one, but I am desirous of focusing on that and unpacking that somewhat for us. A mark of a truly vibrant Christian community is the ministry of the word to one another and the recognition that that is a responsibility of every believer in that community. Now, granted the weight of that responsibility varies from person to person. God certainly calls some to the vocation of pastor and teacher, in which case they will devote themselves to the ministry of the word in a very concentrated and focused intense way. But that doesn't negate the fact that all believers are to be regularly engaged in the ministry of teaching any more than the fact that some have the gift of giving means that we are somehow absolved of the responsibility of giving if we lack that gift. And of course, it's necessary for believing children and for new converts to Christ to concern themselves more with receiving instruction than dispensing it. But the goal of that instruction is in the hope that they will at some point be able to con be contributing participants in the mutual ministry of the body. Generally speaking, we are to be growing in our faith such that we are competent to minister the word to each other. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 was read for us and we're going to focus on particularly the first portion of verse 16. So if you have your Bible, please follow along. Verse 16 begins, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This is the second time in Paul's letter to the Colossians that he refers to a triad of teaching, admonishing, and wisdom. The first occurs in verse 28 of chapter 1, where he describes his ministry as one of proclaiming Christ, according to the ESV, warning, which is the same word translated as admonishing elsewhere, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And if we stopped at Colossians 1.28, we might be tempted to conclude that biblical teaching and admonishing are activities reserved exclusively for those in positions of leadership. After all, Paul was an apostle, and he says this is what we do. But Paul uses the same words in Colossians 3 when he describes our interactions with each other. All believers are to be mutually involved in teaching and admonishing each other with the word of God. And so the two points that we're going to 
look at are that we are to bring the word of God to bear on each other's lives by teaching each other, and we are to bring the word of God to bear on each other's lives by admonishing each other. But before we get to that first point, I want to comment on how Paul describes the word of God there. He calls it the word of Christ. It might refer to the actual teachings of Christ, the actual words that Jesus spoke. But while not in excluding that possibility, it's most likely that what Paul had in mind here is the word or message about Christ. What he referred to earlier in Colossians 1.6 as the word of truth or the gospel. So, as fellow believers, we are to bring the gospel to bear on each other's lives. We have to be diligent to make sure that as we teach and admonish each other from the word that the gospel is always our point of reference. Since the entirety of the scriptures bear witness to Jesus, then we must be careful that in our ministering of the word to each other, we are ministering Christ to one another. We can't be content with the fact that we're appealing to scripture. We always have to be making sure that we're using scripture in such a way that we are helping each other see the glories and the benefits of the person and work of Christ. If we're not doing that, then no matter how much we're appealing to scripture, we're not using it scripturally. Some of you may be familiar with a sketch or a skit that originally appeared on Mad TV years ago. And it featured a comedian by the name of Bob Newhart, which I wouldn't expect many of you to know. Thank you. <laughs> but even if you don't know who Bob Newhart is, maybe you've seen, seen the skit. A woman has come to a counselor and she is seated across from him as he is seated behind his desk. His name is Dr. Switzer, which is really immaterial to the story, but I just wanted to throw that in. And he says, well, Carolyn, tell me, why are you here? And she proceeds to tell him that she is dogged by this anxiety, this fear of being buried in a box. And she says, it makes it rather difficult for me to be in anything boxy, like a tunnel or an elevator or a house. And so Dr. Switzer looks at her and says, so in other words, you're claustrophobic. And she says, well, I, I guess I am. And he continues to consider and he says, Carolyn, I'm gonna tell you two words. I want you to write them down and I want you to apply them whenever you experience this anxiety. So she gets out pen and paper, and he says, here are the two words. Stop it. <laughs> and she is taken aback, and she says, what? what did you say? And he says, you know, I'm amazed. I've dealt with so many people dealing with these kinds of situations, and I've given them this advice. And it's only two words, but people say exactly what you just said. What did you say? And he proceeds to say, 
Stop it. And he wants her to apply that whenever she finds herself overcome with this anxiety. That's comical, but unfortunately, sometimes that reflects how we seek to make use of the Bible in each other's lives. And you don't need Jesus just to say, stop it. The gospel is not in any way integral if all we're doing is pointing out things that need to be changed and telling one another to stop it. We're going to come back to that. Paul says that this word about Christ should dwell in us richly. That word translated as dwell in verse 16 comes from a word for house, and it means to inhabit an abode, to be at home in. In other words, the word of God should be at home among the members of Christ's redeemed community. The word of Christ should so saturate our relationships, not only when we're formally gathered for chapel, not only when we are involved in a Bible or theology class, not only when we are at church on a Sunday morning or at some other time of the week, but in our informal interactions with each other throughout the week in the crevices of our lives. Paul expects that the gospel will be consistently on the lips of believers as they interact with each other. And I'm not speaking about just slinging around proof texts and Bible verses, but an intelligent communication and application of gospel wisdom to each other's lives. When Paul says the word of Christ should dwell richly in you, our tendency might be to think that he is speaking just of us individually, but the you that he is dealing with there is corporate. It seems most reasonable, given the context of that passage, to conclude that he has the collective sense in mind. But the two alternatives are not mutually exclusive. If the word of Christ is to richly dwell in us as a community, then it does stand to follow that it needs to richly dwell in us individually. A helpful gauge of our spiritual health, whether individually or corporately, is to ask ourselves, Are the glories of Christ and his redeeming work frequent topics in my conversation with other believers? What is richly dwelling among us if it is not the gospel? What is at home in terms of our conversation and our discourse if it is not the gospel? as I take inventory of my conversations with other Christians over this past week, what has been most characteristic of our conversation? Gossip? Grumbling? Criticism? Triviality? 
Have I sought to build others up in the faith? Have I intentionally sought to help others see themselves and their circumstances in a Christ-centered way? Have I been desirous of and receptive to others speaking the word of Christ to me? We have an obligation to each other to be richly steeped in the truths of the word, for without that we cannot love one another well. I want to say that again. We have an obligation to be richly steeped in the word of God, for without that, biblically speaking, we cannot love each other well. If teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom is part and parcel of the normal Christian life, of what it means to be a member of the believing community, then it follows that we should be mining the depths of Scripture not only for our own benefit, but for each other's. When we think about why is it that I should read and meditate on Scripture, oftentimes our first and sometimes maybe our only answer is so that I can grow spiritually. And there is truth to that. But if that's where it stops, I am not going the distance that Scripture does. When I am negligent in studying and meditating upon the word of Christ, it does not only impoverish me. It prevents me from contributing to the overall spiritual vitality of the body. It hinders me from nurturing my brothers and sisters as God calls me to. And so, I need you to be pouring over scripture. You need me and those around you to be pouring over scripture. Because this is about so much more than simply our own individual isolated walks with God. We are a community. So to our first point, we are to bring the word of Christ to bear on each other's lives by teaching. When many people think of teaching, they hear that word teaching, they tend to think of a formal academic setting like you are in and you will be in classes and so forth, and that is one aspect of teaching. But biblically, the word is far broader and more practical than that. John Frame, a theologian, offers a definition of teaching and says that it is the use of God's revelation to meet the spiritual needs of people, to promote godliness, and spiritual health. And he adds that oftentimes the teaching in the New Testament is coupled with an adjective such as healthy or sound or good that's indicating that teaching is to be conducive to spiritual health. The noun form of teaching is sometimes translated as doctrine. Biblical doctrine is simply biblical teaching. And if we are to believe God, then we must believe that doctrine, far from being sterile and impractical and irrelevant, is nourishing and health-giving. 
For an illustration of that, let's return to Holly. To say that Holly had a sub-biblical view of the goodness of being an embodied creature would be an understatement. Here is more of her description. It has only been recently that I have been able to comprehend and accept the reality of God's Son becoming flesh and dwelling among us. I knew the words, it was wrote for me. I could recite it without thinking about it like the Pledge of Allegiance or like humming along with a tune on the radio. When I thought about it, I was angry. I was angry that he, the creator of all things, chose to squeeze his magnificence into these stupid, fleshly capsules that we call a body. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Son of God, who created all things, all dimensions, knows all things, inhabited one of these flawed vessels we call bodies. Holly continues to describe how she came into the company of some fellow believers who wisely and lovingly brought the word of Christ, particularly about his incarnation, to bear on her life in penetrating ways. She says, they were the first to hammer this body notion home. Actually, they didn't hammer it home at all. They gently brought this vivid picture to my mind through scripture. The reality of this hit me like a ton of bricks and made me sick to my stomach. I have lived most of my life trying to divorce myself from my body. I chose to think of it like a shell that happened to carry my mind around. I wasn't my body and my body wasn't me. This Jesus made flesh thing was something I pushed away. But they kept bringing it up. Every time they did, it caused my heart to ache. And why? Why? Why did God choose to squeeze himself into this excruciatingly vulnerable body? Plus, he came to us as an infant, born to a teenage mother in a stall. There is nothing more helpless than an infant. How scary is that? I didn't have a choice, but God did. Why submit divinity to this? He created everything. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. This mind-blowing magnificence submitted to a human body and dwelled among frail, stupid, arrogant, inconsistent, and sometimes sadistic people. Why? Time will not allow me to share the entirety of Holly's story. But I'll tell you this. Because this group of believers intelligently and lovingly brought biblical truth about creation and the incarnation to bear on Holly's life, her life was dramatically changed. Contemplating the love that led the infinite God to assume the vulnerability of humanness led Holly to venture out. She continues, I chose to let my guard down. I chose vulnerability. I let another Christian pray with me and I even held their hands. 
I confessed the fear of being vulnerable and wanting to be my own God. God met me in that prayer in the most extravagant, fragrant, clean, gentle, fierce way. I learned God's love spans all time, all places, all spaces, and his grace and mercy flowed through my tears and healed parts of my past, and at the same time gave me a new future. I felt like the most blessed person on this earth. So that's teaching. But the second thing that Paul mentions is admonition, admonishing. We are to bring the word of Christ to bear on each other's lives by admonishing each other. Now that's not a word that we use regularly, but to admonish is to warn. It is to advise. It has to do with setting someone's mind in a proper order by correcting him or her. It's clear from the surrounding context of Colossians 3 that admonition is an expression of Christian love. Admonition is an expression of Christian love. But unfortunately, we don't always see it that way. In fact, try a little experiment and ask several believers to list as many of the one another's of the New Testament as they can. And if admonition even makes that list, my guess is that it won't be far up. Because we tend not to think of admonition as an expression of genuine care and love. One of the things that often prevents us from exercising this dimension of biblical love is the fear that we will be rejected, in which case what is motivating us is selfishness rather than love, to timidly avoid the biblical responsibility to correct each other in light of scripture and the gospel is tantamount to saying, my personal security means more to me than the glory of God and your spiritual well-being. Now, no one is going to come right out and say that, but functionally, that's what's going on. But with that said, not all of us are afraid to confront or to admonish. In fact, some of us have the opposite problem. We're constantly on the lookout for something to admonish someone about. In fact, we kind of like it. And if that's the case, then we're not practicing biblical admonition either. If the thought of confronting and correcting a fellow believer in Christ is accompanied by a pleasure or an anticipation that's a good indicator that my motives are ungodly. Two things should drive us to the ministry of admonishment. A desire to see God's glory more fully reflected in this believer's life, as well as a longing to see each other enjoy greater dimensions of spiritual health and liberty. To give us an idea of what a proper attitude toward towards admonishment should be. 
there are a few lines from Paul that I just want to draw to your attention. In Acts 20, he says to the Ephesian elders, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. In 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, admonish him as a brother. One author says this, when we examine the passages, we sense that admonishing is a ministry calling for much warmth and closeness. There's no hint of a distant judgmentalism or of criticism launched from some height of supposed superiority. Paul's admonitions were stimulated by a deep love for young believers. His love was so deep that his admonitions were often accompanied by tears. Admonition must be exercised in a Christ-centered way as well. When we offer correction to one another, it should be in the context of the gospel. In other words, we should call to mind what Jesus has done, who he has made us by his gracious redeeming work, and why certain behaviors and attitudes are no longer fitting or appropriate for us in light of this grace-given identity. The gospel must be at the center of our call to change. And that's exactly how Paul reasons throughout this chapter in Colossians 3. His command that we put away sinful behavior is rooted in the fact that as believers we have been united to Christ. We have died to the old man, put on the new, we have been raised with Christ, and therefore a new way of living is appropriate. When we do admonish each other, we always need to ask how the gospel comes to play in our rebuke. It's not enough to merely point out that sinful behavior dishonors God and call people to simply stop it. We should always be coming back to the person and the work of Christ and how the conduct we're correcting is out of kilter with his person, with his provisions, and his purposes for us in Christ. And Paul models this time and time again. Biblical counselor and author Paul Tripp says of verses 15 through 17 of Colossians 3, this is one of the New Testament's clearest calls to personal ministry. In this remarkable passage, he writes, Paul calls us to activities we would normally assume are restricted to formal ministry. We are called to have scripture so deeply ingrained in our lives that we are wise and thankful and thus always ready to teach and admonish, confront one another. Paul is calling us to a state of biblical readiness for the ministry opportunities God will bring as he changes us through the ministry of others. I hope that that vision 
of what it means to be a Christian community grabs your attention. I hope it excites you. I hope that there is a desire in you for Cairn to be a community that is increasingly marked by the rich dwelling of the word of God in our midst and a love-motivated teaching and admonition, admonition of one another, recognizing that we are our brother and sister's keepers. We do have this obligation to one another. And towards that end, I ask that you would join me in asking the Lord to make us so. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and for your spirit. We thank you that all who have trusted Christ have been united to him by that spirit. And not only that, that we have been united to one another such that your word says we are members of one another. It is so easy for us to conform to the world, to think of ourselves as isolated beings, to pursue only those interests that we are aware of as immediately benefiting us. But we pray that you would sweep across us as a community such that we would own with greater delight and responsibility this obligation that you say is ours to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another. We pray that we might be open to the reception of instruction and correction as well. Make us by your spirit bold and loving to correct and to instruct. And by that same spirit, make us humble to receive instruction and correction as well so that in all things Christ might be glorified and we might be delighted in him. It is in his name that we pray, asking you to go before us in this day, allow these things to settle in our hearts, show, it is, show us how it is that even today we can be involved in this ministry to which you call us. Amen.